Well, I'm wondering this morning, have you ever been in a situation where someone has done something that was so evil, so unkind, so wicked, that it left you in a place where you hated them and actually wished evil on them? You know, I remember being in fifth grade. I was one of the more popular kids in school, really didn't have any trouble getting along with other kids. I liked school. I liked my teachers. I got good grades. All was well, and the world was as it should be. Until this one kid, this mean kid, this name-calling kid, who for whatever reason had the power to either make you or break you. Know what I mean by that? In other words, if he liked you, everyone liked you. If he didn't like you and made fun of you, then everyone didn't like you and everyone made fun of you. So fifth grade, this kid turns his sights on me, starts calling me by a nickname that is just so horrible, so offensive, so vulgar, I'm not even going to repeat it to you. And of course, it spreads like wildfire through the entire school. No matter how badly I tried to squash it or ignore it or move past it, everyone called me by it and I hated it and as a result, I hated that kid with a passion. So the level to which you can handle it in fifth grade, I considered that kid my arch enemy. Here's my question. Have you ever been in a situation like that? Or someone has done something to you that is so evil, so unkind, so wicked, that their actions leave you in a place where you hate them? Can you think of a situation like that? Can you bring one up in your mind's eye? Now, how hard would it be in that situation to wish positive things for their life? to sincerely pray for things to go well for them, that they would be blessed beyond all imagination with a simple, easy, wonderful life where there's love and joy and happiness. Or how easy to go in the other direction and wish evil on them and pray that God would bring bad things into their life to destroy them, to make them pay for justice to be satisfied and for them to get what at least you believe they deserve. Yet isn't it equally true that every single one of us has done things just as wicked, just as wrong, just as evil, and yet we don't cry out for justice then, do we? No, no, then we cry out for mercy. So here's the connection. The book of Jonah is all about a prophet who's crying out for God's justice on one of his enemies, namely Nineveh. Yet God extends mercy and grace. Why? Because that's who God is. As we heard in our call to worship this morning, Psalm 103, God's slow to anger and he abounds in steadfast love. And in doing so, we get a picture of God's heart for the nations. And how he calls us to have a heart after his own heart with a passion. First to believe this glorious message of salvation, but then to actually go and take that message of salvation to others. That's what we're going to see this morning. God's heart for the nations and his desire for us to have a heart for the nations. So if you would go ahead and open your Bibles with me. To Jonah chapter 1. Jonah is on page 224. Also encourage you to grab my outline. You have your Bible open. Outline in your Bible. You'll be in good shape this morning. Title of my sermon, God Graciously Calls. Three points. God sends his prophet. He pursues his prophet. And he receives his prophet. I'm going to actually kick us off by reading all 16 verses of our passage. Just so that it's in your mind. Follow along as I read Jonah chapter 1, verses 1 to 16. Now the word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city. Call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish from the presence of the Lord. He went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish. So he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish, away from the presence of the Lord. 
But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid, and each cried out to his God, and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had laid down and was fast asleep. So the captain came in and said to him, What do you mean, you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish. They said to one another, Come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, Tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country? And what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord because he had told them. Then they said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, Pick me up and hurl me into the sea, then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land, but they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life, and lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah and hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now, when most people think of Jonah, they immediately think of a fish, right? The fish that swallowed him. And their first question is, did that really happen? But that's obviously not the main point of the book. And we get a hint of that even in the opening lines, which the first lines of any book are critical to the story, but these are particularly crucial in the book of Jonah. Look at how Jonah starts. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, the son of Amittai, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. Jonah obviously doesn't want to go. Why? And what do we even know about Jonah? Who is he? Where is he from? What do we know about Nineveh? I mean, do you realize in the first three verses, we have more questions than answers? Let's take them one by one, starting with what we do know, that Yahweh, the Lord God, has called Jonah the prophet to go to Nineveh, the great city. Calls him to go and proclaim the word of the Lord. But who is Jonah? What do we know about the world in which Jonah lived? Well, we get some information about Jonah from 2 Kings chapter 14. Tells us that Jonah served as a prophet in the time of King Jeroboam II, so one of the many wicked kings of the northern kingdom. Here's 2 Kings 14, 23 to 27. It says, In the 15th year of Amaziah, the king of Judah, so the southern kingdom, Jeroboam II, the king of Israel, so northern kingdom, reigned in Samaria, its capital, and he reigned there for 41 years. Now, when we put that all together, it tells us that we're between 786 and 745 B.C. So it gives us timing. Now listen to this. And he, Jeroboam II, did what was evil In the sight of the Lord. And yet, God restored the borders of Israel according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke by his servant Jonah, the son of Amittai, the prophet. For the Lord saw that the affliction on Israel was very bitter, but the Lord had said that he would not blot out the name of Israel, so he saved them by the hand of Jeroboam II. Now, why is all of that important? Well, first of all, because it gives us the time period for the book of Jonah. So it's written in the early to mid-8th century. But it also helps us understand that Jonah is a prophet proclaiming the word of God to Jeroboam II, who is clearly 
declared to be a wicked king. And yet God's being gracious to Israel, growing their borders, and Jonah has front row seats to watch it all happen. He knows that Israel has done nothing to merit God's favor. Instead, what they deserve, and he knows it, is God's wrath. And yet, what does God do? God extends grace and mercy. But at one level, you could say that we would expect that, right? That God would be gracious to his children, to the people of God. You know, it reminds me of a story I once heard from a friend of mine. He had just given his 12-year-old son a bow and arrow set along with a target. Now, you might be thinking, oh, man, I know where this story is going, right? So, so he gave his 12-year-old son a bow and an arrow and a target. And he also gave very strict commands to this little boy that he could only shoot at the target. And he was specific. No shooting at animals. No birds, no chipmunks, no squirrels, especially squirrels in the trees. I think he might have told his son, gave him an idea. Oh, I'll shoot at the... You know. So what happens? What does the boy do? You guessed it. He shot at a squirrel in a tree. And he missed. And they didn't live out in the country. Right? They, they live in a pretty highly populated town, similar to Windsor, if you will. So let me just ask, how do you think that went for the boy when his dad came home? Dad comes home. He asks very specific questions. And the boy answered, to his credit, honestly. But the boy is 12. And the boy knows, I am in massive trouble. Right? And, and the boy is totally expecting, he's expecting spankings, he's expecting grounding, he's expecting the whole nine yards. You know what my friend did? He took the boy out for ice cream. And he explained to his little boy the meaning of grace. Undeserved kindness. Getting an ice cream instead of getting a spanking. When you absolutely, 100%, beyond the shadow of a doubt, know what you deserve is a spanking. But you could argue, yeah, but we expect that, right? I mean, we expect that. Why? Because that's his son, which is exactly what you could say about God in 2 Kings 14. That of course God would be gracious to Israel. Why? Because Israel is God's children. His people. But why Nineveh? Why Nineveh? Why in the world is God being gracious to Nineveh, to people outside of Israel. Why send Jonah to this Gentile nation when the mission of most prophets is to declare the word of God to Israel and to Judah? Well, it's really helpful for you to know this morning that that's been God's plan all along. I mean, just think about Abraham, Genesis chapter 12, 1 to 3. God promised that all the peoples of the earth would be blessed through Adam's, through Abraham's seed. A promise that is reiterated in Genesis 18 and Genesis 22. Even Jonah's predecessors understood God's heart for the nations. Solomon prayed in 1 Kings 8:60 that God's people would keep his that God's people would keep his commands and walk in his ways so that all the people of the earth may know that Yahweh is God and that there is no other. And both Elijah and Elisha were sent to minister the gospel to Gentiles. Elijah to a Phoenician widow, 1 Kings 17, and Elisha to Naaman, a Syrian general, 2 Kings 5. This is, what's my point? My point is that God has always had a heart for the nations. And now he's calling his prophet Jonah to go to Nineveh. Now what do we know about Nineveh? Well, Nineveh is one of the most significant cities in all of Assyria. 
And the Syrian kings were actually proud of their wicked reputation. In fact, they boasted of their cruelty towards the people that they sacked. So when they would sack a city, they would boast about it. They would make it well known. They would broadcast, if you will, just how wicked they treated the sacked cities so that everyone would know it. There's story upon story. Ancient Near Eastern history, bragging of live dismemberment, parading heads on poles through streets, stretching people with ropes, skinning them alive, burning people at the stake. I mean, these were some wicked people, the Ninevites. And it didn't matter if you were old or young, man or woman, soldier or civilian, they were equally cruel to absolutely everyone. Equal opportunity cruelty, if you will. And as I said, they, they boasted of this cruelty so that everyone would know it, including, including Jonah. So God says to Jonah, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it, for their evil has come up before me. What does Jonah do with that news? Verse 3, look at verse 3. But Jonah rose to flee to Tarshish. Notice, away from the presence of the Lord, he went down to Joppa and found a ship going to Tarshish, so he paid the fare and went down into it to go with them to Tarshish. Again, notice, away from the presence of the Lord. So twice it says in the one verse that Jonah flees from God, away from the presence of the Lord. Last question before we move on. Why does Jonah flee? I mean, Jonah is commanded to do one thing. Go to Nineveh, preach against the great city. God's expression of his sovereign will is crystal clear. Get up, go. And we expect him to go, don't we? Just like all the other prophets before him. And yet he flees. Why does he flee? Is Jonah afraid of the Ninevites? Is he afraid they'll torture him? Is he afraid to go alone? Is he afraid to be a single voice in such a great and wicked city? Turn with me to Jonah 4. Jonah tells us himself why he doesn't want to go. We don't have to guess this morning. Jonah chapter 4, look at verses 1 to 3. But it displeased Jonah exceedingly, and he was angry. What is Jonah angry about? He's angry that Nineveh just repented, chapter 3, verses 8 and 9. And he prayed to the Lord, and he said, O Lord, is not this what I said when I was yet in my country? Jonah chapter 1, 1 to 3. That is why I made haste to flee to Tarshish. For I knew that you are a gracious God and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Therefore now, O Lord, please take my life from me, for it is better for me to die than to live. Why does Jonah flee? Because he knows God. Because he knows God's character. He knows how merciful God is. And he knows that God is going to be gracious to Nineveh and that when he preaches against them, they're going to repent and believe and God's going to withhold his judgment against them and he's going to let them live. Jonah doesn't want God to be gracious to his enemies. He doesn't want them to repent and believe. Instead, he wants their doom. He wants their judgment. But at the same time, recognize he's all for Israel. He likes God's mercy for them, so he's not against grace. Jonah's not against grace. He's just against God's grace being extended to Gentiles. How about you this morning? Is there anyone in your life? Is there any group of people that you don't want to repent and believe that you don't want God to be gracious to, but for God to judge. You know, I was wrestling with this question over the course of this past week. And I think the best parallel for us today would be violent terrorist organizations like the Taliban, who are absolutely wicked in their actions. 
Here's the question. Ask your heart of hearts. Do you want God to be gracious to the Taliban? To, to, to people who are literally going door to door to hunt down pastors and Christians to kill them. Do you have a desire for God to be gracious to them? Or if you're honest, do you just want God to judge them? You see, as soon as we put ourselves in that position, we're already in trouble. Because all of a sudden, we're putting ourselves in the position of God. As if we have the authority to pick and to choose to whom we think deserves God's justice and God's mercy. When you certainly don't want God's justice for yourself, you want God's mercy. We need to understand here, God has a heart for the nations to be merciful and gracious to them. And he wants his prophets like Jonah and like every single one of us to have a heart for the nations like his as well. Jonah flees. He runs in the exact opposite direction from where God calls him to go, right? God calls him to go to Nineveh. Where is Nineveh located? This is so great, right? Nineveh is located 500 miles east of Jerusalem. Jonah heads west to Joppa, and then he goes west again from Joppa to Tarshish. In fact, do you know that Tarshish is the westernmost point in the entire Mediterranean world. So he's trying to run as far away from God as he possibly can. God not only, number one, sends his prophet, but number two, pursues his prophet. Allow me to read verses four to six again. But the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea, and there was a mighty tempest on the sea, so that the ship threatened to break up. Then the mariners were afraid and each cried out to his God and they hurled the cargo that was in the ship into the sea to lighten it for them. But Jonah had gone down into the inner part of the ship and had lain down and was fast asleep. So the captain came and said to him, what do you mean you sleeper? Arise, call out to your God. Perhaps the God will give a thought to us that we may not perish." I want you to see how God immediately pursues his prophet, right? Back in verse 3, we were told Jonah rose to flee, all in an effort to get away from the presence of the Lord. But now in verse 4, it says, but the Lord hurled a great wind on the sea. You see how God is tenaciously pursuing his prophet, even using a mighty storm to get him. So there's no way in the world Jonah's going to get away from the presence of the Lord. And the truth is, right, you should be wondering in your mind, right, how does Jonah really think he's going to get away from God in the first place? Like, like, doesn't he know better than that? Doesn't he know Psalm 139? Do you know Psalm 139? Psalm 139 tells us, right, it, it asks the question, where shall I go from your spirit? Lord is talking. Or where shall I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in Sheol, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and I dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your right hand shall lead me and take hold of me. Doesn't Jonah know that? Well, of course he does. But Jonah is in sin. And what do I always say about sin? If you don't know what I'm going to say next, you should write this down. This is super helpful for you this morning. What do I always say about sin? Sin makes you stupid. It is so true. Sin makes you stupid. And you know that Jonah's in sin, right? The text tells you three times in three verses that he went down. That's, that's a literary, specific literary device that the author is using to tell you he's in trouble, right? That he went down. 3A, he went down to Joppa. 3B, he went down into the ship. 5A, he went down into the innermost part of the ship. Then even 5B, what does it say? He went down 
to sleep. Right? What, what is that telling us? It's telling us that Jonah is sinking into sin. He's declining into destruction because sin makes you stupid. How stupid do you need to be to think you can actually run away from God's presence? But God goes after him, doesn't he? First by A, sending a mighty storm, then B, sending a pagan captain. Notice how clear the text is. Verse 4 says, but the Lord hurled a great wind upon the sea. Now throughout the book of Jonah, we are going to see God is sovereign over all things. Right? God sends a great wind, verse 4. Verse 17, he sends a great fish. Chapter 4, God appoints a plant, then a worm, and then a scorching east wind. What's my point? My point is if God's pursuing you, he's going to get a hold of you. But how gracious and kind of God to do so. Because he doesn't just let Jonah run away in his sin and destroy himself, but instead God chases him down. Look at the details. The wind was so great that there was a mighty tempest. Now, it's not just a normal storm, right? God is targeting Jonah's ship. Just think about that. Right? We, we've got smart bombs. We've got heat-sinking missiles. We now have drones equipped with technology to identify and attack specific military targets. But there's nothing compared to God's pursuit of Jonah in this storm. And we see that even as the author personifies the boat. Look again at verse 4. It says, so the ship threatened to break up. So essentially, the ship is crying out, I've had enough, right? The sailors are crying out, I've had enough, which tells you this must have been an incredibly massive storm. Because experienced sailors are not afraid of much. And yet here they are crying out to their gods, hurling cargo into the sea. But where's Jonah? Jonah's down in the inner part of the ship and he's sleeping. Now, unfortunately, what you don't pick up in our English translations is the manner of this event. Because the Hebrew makes it clear these sailors are responding and they're responding with action. Right? That's the manner of the verb. They're, they're, they're acting. How is Jonah responding? In action. He's sleeping. He's tucked away in the hull of the ship which is just another way in which he's fleeing away from the presence of the Lord. If you will, with his snoring, he's blowing off God. So God sends a mighty storm and God sends a pagan captain. Don't miss what he says because the irony is unbelievable. Verse 6, what do you mean, you sleeper? In other words, the pagan captain is saying, what are you doing? And the reference is directly to Jonah going down into the belly of the boat and fleeing away from the presence of the Lord. So the pagan captain is literally rebuking God's prophet. And he says appropriately, arise. Stop going down. Come up. Call out to your God. The pagan captain is giving this pathetic prophet great advice. That's exactly what Jonah should do and should have done and should be doing right from the start. What does Jonah say in response? Nothing. He doesn't even respond. He's blowing off the pagan captain in the same way that he's blowing off God. But we get this great transition in the captain's closing argument. He says, perhaps the God, at this point, generic, will give a thought to us that we may not perish. Now, helpful for you to know, that's exactly what the king of Nineveh is going to say in chapter 3, verse 9. Who knows, perhaps God may turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now, before we move on, I just want you to see how gracious God is being here. I mean, for starters, he doesn't have to pursue Jonah. 
He could have just left him in his sin. Second, he could have just destroyed him. He could have destroyed the ship, the captain, and the sailors, who, by the way, at this point in time, are crying out to a plethora of their pagan gods, each to his own god. But he doesn't do that. Instead, he's merciful and gracious. He's slow to anger, and he's abounding in steadfast love. And he relents from bringing total disaster. Why? So that none may perish. How does he do that? How does he make that possible? Through the sacrifice of a substitute. Transition. God pursuing his prophet to God receiving his prophet. Allow me to read verses 7 to 16 again. And they said to one another, come, let us cast lots, that we may know on whose account this evil has come upon us. So they cast lots, and the lot fell on Jonah. Then they said to him, tell us on whose account this evil has come upon us. What is your occupation? Where do you come from? What is your country, and of what people are you? And he said to them, I am a Hebrew, and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the dry land. Then the men were exceedingly afraid and said to him, What is this that you have done? For the men knew that he was fleeing from the presence of the Lord, because he had told them. Then he said to him, What shall we do to you that the sea may quiet down for us? For the sea grew more and more tempestuous. He said to them, pick me up and hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down for you. For I know it is because of me that this great tempest has come upon you. Nevertheless, the men rowed hard to get back to dry land. But they could not, for the sea grew more and more tempestuous against them. Therefore they called out to the Lord, O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life. And lay not on us innocent blood, for you, O Lord, have done as it pleased you. So they picked up Jonah, hurled him into the sea, and the sea ceased from its raging. Then the men feared the Lord exceedingly, and they offered a sacrifice to the Lord and made vows. Now notice how the crew's trying to figure out exactly who to blame for this God-given storm which is interestingly enough, right? I mean, somehow they know the storm is from God. Yet they're casting lots because none of them thinks that it's them. Just think with me about that. Isn't that hilarious? The irony in Jonah is incredible, right? I mean, you understand what's going on here. They know that the storm is from God. They know that it's targeting their ship, but they cast lots because the assumption is It's not my sin. Surely my sin is not as bad as that guy's sin. Isn't that our tendency? They just were crying out to the plethora of pagan gods, and yet they're like, surely not my sin. My sin is not as bad as your sin. And the truth is, they all deserve God's wrath, don't they? But of course, the lot falls on Jonah. Jonah's identified as the cause of this God-given storm. So they start peppering him with questions. What do you do? (laughs) Where are you from? What's your country? Who are your people? Those are interesting questions to say the least. How would you have responded? Would you have challenged the casting of lots? Would you have denied the result? Or would you have just shrugged it off? Jonah does none of the above. Instead, he immediately sees the lot as God's finger specifically specifically pointing him out. And so he replies, almost in creedal fashion, I'm a Hebrew and I fear the Lord, the God of heaven who made the sea and the dry land. Few things to take note of. First, Jonah comes clean. Right? He, He owns it. He owns his sin. Second, Jonah uses the name of God, Yahweh, with this specific description, that he's the God of the heaven who made the sea. Notice how that comes first, totally relevant to the context, then the dry land. So he's the God not only of the storm, but of the sea and everything in it, which immediately brings fear to these sailors. 
So they were afraid, verse 5, with the mighty tempest, but now they're exceedingly afraid of the almighty God. And the result is more questions. What have you done? Why are you fleeing? What shall we do that the sea might calm down? Apparently the sea was only getting more and more and more out of control. How would you summarize their questions? Wouldn't it be to ask this one all-encompassing question? How do we appease God's wrath? What's Jonah's answer? Look at verse 12. Jonah says, pick me up. Hurl me into the sea. The Lord hurled the wind. The sailors hurled the Congo. Now they're supposed to hurl the prophet, which should be a no-brainer, don't you think? Jonah just confirmed, I'm the problem, and this is the solution. Hurl me into the sea. And by the way, Jonah means nothing to these sailors. He's a total stranger who's only brought trouble on their lives. But for some reason, they try to row even harder as if they're going to outrow the storm that's only getting more and more violent. We were told that twice. Verse 11, the sea grew more and more tempestuous. Then it says it again. But right in between that, right, we get confirmation. Jonah is the solution. He says it himself. Hurl me into the sea. Then the sea will quiet down. For I know that it is because of me that this great storm, this great tempest has come upon you. And yet, irony all over this, right? The sailors are terrified to do so. Why are they terrified? Because they're actually acting more righteous than Jonah at this point. So from their perspective, they're between a rock and a hard place, right? Jonah's the problem, so they need to sacrifice him to save themselves. And yet, Jonah is God's prophet. So if we sacrifice God's prophet, God's man, won't God kill us anyway? You see the dilemma? Rock, hard place? What do they do? Irony of ironies, here it is. They cry out to Yahweh, just like Jonah should have done all along. Look at what they say, verse 14. O Lord, let us not perish for this man's life and lay not on us innocent blood, for you are Yahweh, the God of the sea and the God of the dry land, and you have done as it pleases you. These pagans have greater clarity than this prophet, which causes them to do what? To pick up Jonah, hurl him into the sea. So they sacrifice him. They sacrifice God's prophet in order to save themselves. So he's their substitute. He takes their place. He dies so that they might live. Look at the response. Verse 15. The sea immediately ceased from raging. Verse 16, the men feared the Lord exceedingly. They feared Yahweh, and they offered sacrifices to him, to the Lord, to Yahweh, and made vows to him. As you can imagine, the commentators are all over the place on whether or not these men actually came to faith. And, and I don't think we can know definitively one way or the other. But I tend to think that they have come to faith. And I think that for a couple of reasons. The first is because they fear Yahweh and they offer sacrifices and vows to him, which is the exact same language that Jonah's going to use in chapter 2. In fact, flip forward, chapter 2, verse 9, right? Jonah's in the belly of the fish. What does he say, chapter 2, verse 9? He says, but I, with the voice of thanksgiving, will sacrifice to you what I have vowed I will pay. Then he says this, salvation belongs to the Lord. That's the first reason why I think the sailors have come to faith. Here's the second reason. Because the Ninevites repent and believe in chapter 4. And even with a quick reading of Jonah, you're going to see that chapters 1 and 2 are set up as a perfect parallel to chapters 3 and 4. So I believe the sailors came to faith. But again, we can't know for sure. That's just my humble perspective. But as we close this morning, what do we do with all of this? Where do we land? 
What applications do we take home with us? Well, I think there's at least two steps that we need to take this morning as we jump into the book of Jonah. Step number one is to have a heart that is sincerely touched by God. And then step number two is to have a heart that is radically transformed by God. And I think that because the main theme of Jonah is God's heart for the nations. That's obvious by God sending Jonah to Nineveh in the first place, but also in God pursuing his prophet that he might not sink into sin or decline to destruction. God redeemed him. And God even doing a good work in these pagan sailors' lives. So irony upon irony, the, the sent prophet runs from God so the pagan sailors might turn to God. And when specifically does that happen? When the prophet is sacrificed as a substitute. I mean, do you understand This is ultimately pointing forward to the Lord Jesus Christ. He's the ultimate prophet who is sacrificed as a substitute in order to appease God's wrath, that we might be saved. But in all that, we see God's heart for the nations. And he's calling us to have a heart for the nations. But you'd never see his heart so clearly if he didn't have a prophet who wasn't willing to go, right? I mean, Jonah is nothing like Jesus. He's the opposite of Jesus, right? Jonah flees from the will of God, whereas Jesus keeps the will of God, and he does so perfectly. And yet Jonah's disobedience enables us to see God's heart for the nations all the clearer, that he has a passion for the lost, that he has a deep desire that his messengers make it to their location so that they might preach the good news of the gospel so that sinners might repent and believe and be saved. Aren't you glad to see God's sovereign hand over all of these details? That you might see how tenaciously he pursues both the saved and the lost Because God is always working. He's always pursuing. He's never resting until we all find our rest ultimately in him. So if you're here this morning and you stand outside of Christ, then my appeal to you is to stop running from God. God has got his sights on you. And he won't stop pursuing you until you respond. Instead, I would suggest if you're running from God and you read Jonah 1, what can you expect in your life as you continue to run away from God? I would suggest the storm is probably only going to get worse as he comes after you. Until you repent. Until you believe in the one true prophet who's been sacrificed as your substitute so that God's wrath might be assuaged. Do you understand that the temp is is supposed to give you a picture of what God's wrath looks like? And the response, universal, is terrified. Right? It's a picture. God's prophet sacrificed as a substitute so that God's wrath might be assuaged. So that you, rather than running from God, can be reconciled to God. There can be peace between you and your creator. Do you understand? That's step one this morning. Having a heart sincerely touched by God. Allow him to do that good work in your life. Then step two. Have a heart radically transformed by God. Because we're not called to judge who gets to hear the good news of the gospel and who does not. We're just called to go, right? Go, therefore, and make disciples of all the nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit, and teaching them to observe all that I commanded you. That's Jesus' great commission. That's Jesus' heart for the nation. And it's for every single one of us. So if you're here this morning and you're on some other mission, then the first thing you need to do is repent. Because you're not on God's mission. 
He's very clear about what his mission is. Go, therefore, make disciples. Hear the word of the Lord. His clear call on your life to go. Go, therefore, make disciples of all the nations. Go, share, evangelize, baptize those who repent and believe, and teach. What should I teach? All that God has commanded us to teach. The whole counsel of God. Not just what you pick and choose, but every word. I want you to hear that this morning. Who should you share with? Every person in front of you. Whosoever shall believe. God's given you a mission field. God's given you a circle of influence. Who should you share in that circle of influence? Every single one. You don't need God to bring a name to your mind. You don't need for him to, to give you an, an urging to move forward. You just need to listen to the word of God. Go. Preach the gospel. Share with the person in front of you. Go. Make disciples. And you don't get to pick and choose the message. You don't get to leave out parts that you don't like. Go. Share. Preach the good news of the gospel. That includes the bad news. Reality that we're sinners. We deserve God's judgment. Here's the Savior. Here's his person. Here's his work. Bad news. Good news. Salvation's available in the Lord Jesus Christ if you will but repent and believe. You don't get to pick and choose who responds. You just need to go and you just need to share. You just need to be faithful. So we don't get to be nationalistic. We don't only get to pray for the salvation of Americans if you're American. We don't get to just pray for the salvation of Indians if you're from India. We don't get to be nationalistic. We don't get to pray and only preach to people that we think are kind and deserve salvation and then skip the Taliban. We don't get to pick and choose. We get to go. And we get to share. And that includes not only praying for the salvation of your own family, which I know is near and dear to your heart, near and dear to my heart. Parents, children, grandparents, uncles, aunts, right? Your family is near and dear to your heart. But you don't get to just care for the people that are in your family. God calls us to have a heart for the nations, for unreached people all around the world. Do you know that according to the Joshua Project, there are 4,000 unreached people groups in the world today? 4,000 identifiable groups of people who have a distinct culture, language, or social class who lack a community of Christians able to evangelize the rest without outside help. What does that mean? It means the only opportunity for these people to hear the good news of the gospel is through external witnesses coming in. So clearly, there is much work to be done. 4,000 unreached people groups. How do we do it? Step one, have a heart that is sincerely touched by God, meaning your salvation, clarity in your mind. Crystal, you can't go to step two until you get step one. Crystal clear. God sent a prophet to be sacrificed as a substitute for my sin so that God's wrath might be assuaged and I can be reconciled with him for all eternity. Step one, a heart sincerely touched by God. Then step two, having a heart radically transformed by God 
so that you would not only be willing to go to an unreached people group, but my guess is this morning, what would be even harder for you would that be that you would be willing to go to the person next door, to the person in the next cubicle, or the person at your next reunion. And joyfully, courageously, and with deep conviction, share the message of salvation. So that through the substitutionary sacrifice of the one true prophet, the Lord Jesus Christ, people might be saved. So that none may perish. May God give us the grace. Much work to be done that we would have a heart after God's own heart, that we would have a heart for the nations. Allow me to pray to that end. Father, we're grateful for the book of Jonah. Father, we read chapter 1, and it would be so easy for us to step back, and in our mind's eye, just think to ourselves, man, I'm just glad I'm not like Jonah. Oh, Lord, in so many ways we are just like Jonah. I pray for every heart and mind here this morning. I pray first for any who are running from the Lord, fleeing from his presence. They're sitting here in church this morning, but in their heart of hearts, they're running from you. Oh, Lord, I pray that you would do a good work, that you would cause them to stop running and recognize that it's in your grace and in your mercy that you've been pursuing them all these years. Give them grace to repent and believe in the Lord Jesus. And then, Father, I pray that you would be at work in our minds and in our hearts, that our, that our hearts would be soft clay in your hand, that you would be molding us and shaping us, that you would be transforming us, that we would have a heart for the nations, that we would have a passion for the lost, that you would give us a zeal to share with the person in the in the cubicle next to us, to share with the neighbor who lives next door, to share with the person who's right in front of us on a daily basis that we know and love and yet are too afraid to speak up and say something. Father, may it start with a heart that is burdened for that person. Father, our deepest desire is that people would come to faith and worship your holy name our desires that none would perish, but all would worship and praise. Father, we pray that you would do that good work, that your name might be glorified. We pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.